All right, we're live. <gasps> yeah, we're live. Hi, guys. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are here today with my friend Ashley. Here. I've been I'm here. wanting to have her on here for a while. We had to schedule and then reschedule, but finally we, we made it happen. Uh, Ashley's been my friend for a few years. We've known Hi. each other from certain circles. Um, welcome to the corner. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to have you. So this is a recovery podcast. Yep. Um, we What we talk about here is all things recovery. Well, we talk to people from all walks of life that have different types of recovery, some from eating disorders, some from drug addiction, some from alcoholism, um, and some people that have mental health, you know, co-occurring disorders, dual diagnosis. You're in luck because I have them all. Okay, good. Very yep. well. Um, what we'll do is what we, we want to talk about who you are, who you were, where you Whoever. grew up, where okay. you were born, all that stuff, growing up and then getting into whatever you got into, because I know it's pretty gnarly from what I remember you telling me, and then what, how you got sober and all that. So sure. go ahead, tell us who you are. Oh boy, uh, where do you want me to look? Uh, that, it's, there's a camera there. right there, that okay. thing. <laughs> uh, my name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I'm also uh, a former drug abuser. Um, I have struggled with eating disorder, depression, anxiety, you name it, probably struggled with it other than gambling. Not so much of a gambler. Um, I originally from New England. Uh, my parents are uh, New Englanders. And so I lived in New England and Italy until I was six and a half when we moved to the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And uh, we moved to Silicon Valley uh, very serious culture shock there um, from being in Boston. Um, I, you know, we have this saying in our, our in our program, our twelve step program that goes, um, you know, like I always felt different, and you know, like I was born with my skin too tight, and I was literally different. I was half Jewish, so I had this like crazy curly hair, I had a Boston accent. We moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. I was thrown into, um, I went into a Catholic school and uh, put into, you know, California Catholic school, totally different culture. And people were like, the kids were scared of me because mm -hmm. they just didn't know what to make of this, this girl. Right. And um, teachers didn't, <laughs> didn't love that I had questions and I was questioning them. And, um, and so I, felt different, you know, mm. I felt other and, and I had a lot of things to back that up as to why I was right that I felt other. Mm. I also had experienced childhood sexual trauma by the time I was five. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what made me an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. It didn't help. Right. right? Okay. <laughs> Let's be clear. It didn't help, but I really do believe that, um, I have, you know, the way that I see alcoholism and I use alcoholism to include all the drugs and all the things because I'm, I'm, I'm my, my ism, my alcoholism is anything that affects me from the neck up. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's, that's anything that takes me out of where I am in a way that is, you know, abusing substance. And so when, um, you know, yes, I had this, this childhood trauma, however, the, the way that I describe addiction is it's the compulsive mindset with free floating anxiety and depression, right? And then they, 
they meet, they make a baby mm -hmm. and that baby is alcoholism. It's the compulsivity and the anxiety and then, and then, and then you get that wrapped up and you hit it into the reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. And now we're addicted. Now we're in that cycle. Now it's a need, a drive, the main thing in my life, the only thing I can see. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so I went to Catholic school for eight years. Um, and, uh, and got in a lot of trouble. The first thing I started using was sugar. The second thing I started using was male attention because I hit puberty very young. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was drugs and alcohol. Um, How old were you when you first started experimenting with drugs and alcohol? So I had my first drink at seven. I That's quite young. It is quite young. <laughs> I stole a beer from my parents' fridge because I knew that you weren't supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it was alcohol. I didn't like, I didn't have any, I just knew it was like, don't do that. Okay. I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. So I steal that. And it took me a week to drink it. I don't remember getting drunk. I drank it in a closet. It was like, it was like my F you. It wasn't about the alcohol per se, but it was that about was, doing it. That was the first time that I, and it was a conscious decision. I took it into the, um, into the closet, drink sure. it, you know, that kind secretive. of thing. You yeah. know, you secretive, screw you. I'm going to do this. This is what grownups do. And then, and then that. And my, my parents weren't big drinkers, but it was, it was there. It was there. Yeah. So obviously at seven, like it wasn't like you turned right into drinking yeah. regularly. When did it, when did you really get into drugs and alcohol to where it yeah. kind of became a regular thing? So, um, so I, in, Seventh and so in, in, in the seventh grade ish, um, I started, I hit puberty very young and it was really like, like 10, you know? And, right. um, and so the boys at my school didn't want to hang, weren't interested in me. And I was very interested in boys. So now I'm hanging out with older boys, right. Yeah. And, um, an older crowd. And so people are, so started to smoke weed, maybe seventh grade hate, I, to this day, hate marijuana. It, I just, it does something. I don't feel good when I, when I ingest it. And um, so when you were, when you started smoking it, you were hating it or, yeah, but just doing it because people were doing it. Yeah. I was like, I'm probably doing it wrong. <laughs> I, I was like, they're having a great time. I must be doing this wrong. Right. Oh, I, I hated methamphetamine. Do you know how much methamphetamine I did? So much methamphetamine so much because they remember we ran out of cocaine was I supposed to not do drugs right you gotta be kidding so yeah I did a lot of drugs I didn't like okay um and that was one of them and then I started drinking and then I started having sex around 12 and a half ish and I was so I had this secret life outside of my catholic school friends I was like straight A student, like, you know, in hanging out, going to the mall with my eighth grade, seventh grade friends, mm -hmm. and then out here partying, having sex with 25 year olds that I met online, like, and nobody that young. Yeah. You were that young and the, oh my God. And yeah, because of, uh, you, I don't, uh, we had a uh, aim AIM. My parents are probably have no, they're not watching this. Uh -huh. Um, so yeah. So like I, I had this secret life which I treasured because it was like something no one could take away from me. And it was part of my addiction was like this secret thing that I could do. You could never own me. You could never control me, but mm -hmm. it wasn't so big that I would get in trouble. Mm -hmm. I still like had this double life. And eventually that, you know, as it does, those 
that double life didn't work anymore. So like, that's how it started. So basically I start drinking um, a lot and in eighth grade, I'm starting to drink regularly and by myself, Hmm. but I don't notice that I'm drinking regularly and by myself. It's just, it just sort of happened. Um, I'm hiding bottles in my closet and and nobody, how were you getting the alcohol? Um, I mean, I'm hanging out with older people. So they were able to yeah. Yeah. My parents have bottles of wine. Right. Um, so I start, you know, drinking, smoking cigarettes, and then that starts ramping up. I get really addicted to cocaine, really, really addicted to cocaine. Um, and the alcoholism underneath the cocaine was very interesting because it wasn't until um, I got sober the last time, mm-hmm. um, which I ended up getting sober at 19. I had a very hard time. Like, well, am I really an alcoholic? Like mm-hmm. I was a super gnarly drug addict, but like, am I really an alcoholic? And, um, so I, I made this decision. I kept relapsing because I couldn't figure out if I was an alcoholic or, I mean, the, the when I tell you some of the stories, mm-hmm. you will die. Like, how could you not know? Yeah. But I swear to you, I was unsure. So relapsing my, in your adolescent period. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you got sober at 19, so that's still a teen. Oh, yeah, but I mean, I went, I started, they started putting me in programs when I was 15. I was going to ask that. Yeah. So, so you were, your family was worried about you and they started putting you in like outpatients or? Yes, so I started with, you know, a therapist and then I, and then they put me in an outpatient program and then, um, and then eventually uh, there was police involvement. And so I needed I became a ward of the state of California and, um, at 16. And so, um, in order not to go to California youth authority where they would have made me a real criminal, uh, that my parents sent me to this, um, adolescent lockdown unit in Utah for, for like wilderness camp, wilderness. And then a lockdown. Oh, it was lockdown. Oh, because you were an adolescent. So you could be locked. Yeah. So, um, I was no leaving. Oh no. Yeah. New. Um, <laughs> they're currently being sued for uh, torture and abuses of young children. And Did you witness this stuff? I, and I, I was there. Did you endure it? Yeah. And so I recently testified um, so about that in that case. Okay. Um, but so I was, I was in those places. I went to another place um, when I was 17 for a year because in between those, um, so I started shooting heroin. The first time I shot heroin, I overdosed. My boyfriend was a heroin addict. I did not know this. First time? The first time. How old were you? Six, uh, 15. So the first time I put, he put a needle in my arm at 15. Did you already know that he shot heroin? Not until we had been dating a little while. And then when you saw it, was there any kind of fear that that's a needle? I yes, don't want to I was like, head? are you kidding? I'm going to save you. I'm going to get you off drugs. I'm going to get you off heroin. So we did this. I mean, he, was, he took me to my first meeting. He was like, you have a problem. I'm like, I have a problem. He took you to a meeting before you guys ever shot dope? Before I ever shot dope. Oh, before you ever shot dope. So he was. He, he, he had been shooting dope a long time. But he was trying to get sober at this time or. No, he was just. He just took you to a meeting because I had a problem. He's like, you're fucked up. I yeah. gotta take you. Yeah. Yeah. It was like my heroin addict boyfriend's taking me to a meeting. This is cute. So um, you overdosed the very first time at 15. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. But overdosing then looked very different than overdosing now. Sure. <laughs> Sure. Uh, this was actually heroin, not fentanyl. Right. Um, and so, um, I was a disaster. It was awful. I hated it because overdosing then on heroin, which is different than what you have on the streets today, uh-huh. 
you don't always go completely out. So I wasn't completely out. I was experiencing all of the overdose symptoms and which a lot of throwing up and, and just very, very sick. Did you overdose in front of him? Yes. So he was able to, Yeah. what was he able to do? I don't know. Just stay with me. Just stay with you. Yeah. You weren't hospitalized. No, 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 no. It was just clearly like problematic. Um, and so I was like, that was terrible. I never want to do that ever again. Why would you do that? Oh my God. You know, like, and then a couple months later I was like, well, maybe I did too much. That's usually what goes on in the, in the, in the attic mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm terrified. Like I was scared of needles. Like Uh if you had told me, if you had told anyone that I would have used needles, like not a chance. Yeah. She'll, she'll, she'll snore. Okay, fine. She'll do these snore other the things. Yeah. And no. She won't shoot the heroin. No. And, and so I learned to, I also learned to shoot heroin, shoot dope as we called it. Um, like a, like a junkie who'd been shooting dope for a long time. So I learned to do intramuscular injections mostly. Um, because he had, no why am I not surprised with, with you with that like, <laughs> he, last learner? My, let's, let's do it yeah, the right way. Yeah. So my, my boyfriend was 15 years older than me. And, um, and so he'd been shooting dope a long time and had no veins. And for those of you who don't know, when you shoot dope a long time, eventually your veins collapse. There's and no more veins to be there's found. Just, yeah. You just, it's, they, they collapse. And so you just can't really use them. So I learned to shoot dope, like, uh, like intramuscular, which, also means that I experienced a lot of painful, like abscesses and painful things. And, um, and so I sort of started doing that behind his back and then he found out about it. And, um, you know, he is a big part of my story. That relationship is a big part of my story and an Mm -hmm. important piece because he didn't make, again, he didn't make me a a drug addict or, or an alcoholic or any of those things, but as a young girl. Mm -hmm. What we do often as young addicts is we find someone to take care of us in this new world, right? right? And someone to teach us. We find a mentor, if you will. And it's typically an older male mentor. Like you hear it. Oh, she has a, you know, she's 15. She has an older boyfriend. He X, Y, Z, right. That's just like, I hear that story over and over again. And so this was a super mentally, physically abusive relationship but it felt like love to me. And then you add in the drugs and you add in um, all the other things that were going on. And it just, it, I, it was like a storm. It swept me up and it just, everything happened so fast. I became this junkie in such a short period of time. I was a straight A student. Mm-hmm. I played all sports, what, you know, whatever. I went to private school. And then within three and a half years, I was just, you know, pregnant um, living, you know, homeless by choice and in your um, mid teens at 16 homeless by, by choice. I want to be clear that I could have gone home. <laughs> you emancipated yourself or you just took off? I, well, I at 16, I was a, st- I was awarded the state. I was living with my boyfriend. So basically my parents did not know what to do. And so I would take off. I ran away to Mexico with one of my boyfriend's mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, um, And then like, I I would disappear, I would take off. And again, but we didn't have cell phone. It was very different. Like I was straight up missing person trying to find me. And so my parents were trying to figure out everything short of like sending me to this place, these places, because that was not ideal. 
and um, and you didn't have the kind of understanding of mental health and addiction mm -hmm. that we do now. So um, my parents, as long they they were like, if we know where she is, so like my boyfriend, they would let my boyfriend come and live with us for a period of time and live with me in my room when I was 15. And mm -hmm. like, because for them, they have two other kids, two of my younger sisters. And if they, if he was there, they knew I'd come home. Mm. Right. So it, be, it got down to like when sometimes people look at like, why are the parents doing this? How did the parents get so like, and it looks like enabling. And when you ask me, they're like, she wasn't going to come home unless this person was here. So at least we knew she was alive. Like, otherwise we literally weren't sure if she was alive. Mm. And so, um, like moving in with my boyfriend, same kind of thing. It was like, they know I'm alive. Like that, that it was down to that. Like, is she, how do we know she's alive? All the rest of the parenting tools. So that kept them satisfied enough. They weren't happy about it, but it, it was what it For, was. Yeah. I mean, they really, I, I was, you know, I was willing to sleep outside just to say, screw you. I don't want to be in your house. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So it right. was like, I was homeless, be not because I didn't have a home, but because I would rather, I was like, I would rather take everything from me. Right. You can't punish me because I don't care about anything. Take it all. Right. So I want to ask you something. Like, there's something that I noticed that in listening to your timeline, mm -hmm. um, being that there was sexual abuse, mm -hmm. you said five. Yeah. And did you remember that? Like mm -hmm. this was always on your mind. Yes. You knew it happened. Yes. Okay. So, and then you mentioned, and I hear this a lot, like I, certain things that people say in the, those rooms mm -hmm. is, is um, this happened, that happened, that happened. And it doesn't, that doesn't make me an alcoholic. Now I have some friends yeah. that are in recovery that we've, we've gone a little deeper into that. And mm -hmm. a lot of people that are in, let's say in AA will yeah. say that, um, Trauma doesn't make you an alcoholic. Now, some of my friends disagree with that. They actually say that trauma can definitely uh, rewire your brain, rewire your brain yeah. and put you in a position to where you may start seeking yeah. substances yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or sexual right. desires that right. you said because of puberty at a very yes. young age. So, and, and then something that people shouldn't discount too is that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob had trauma. Totally. They, totally. they had trauma too. So, so to clarify, to uh -huh. clarify, I have the genetics. Yes. Right. So I have the genetics. I did. I, there were things about me and how my brain worked and how I thought that I remember before that happened mm -hmm. that are indicative of someone who's not going to be happy with the with with what's presented to them. Sure. And um, I do believe that. So what. For years, I would go to therapy. I'd go to EMDR, and they would we love would, EMDR. We, it, me too. Love and, it. But we would talk about my trauma, right? And, right. We, and my and so okay. Tell me about your sexual abuse. Well, I was so young. I didn't know what was like. I really, it's not the trauma the way that other people. It's not an uh, um, a violent rape. Okay, so mm -hmm. it didn't look like that. Sure. It was someone I knew. It was like it was it was presented in a game. Like I didn't. I knew something was strange, but yes. like it wasn't, I wasn't um, just terrified out of my mind kind of deal. The trauma for me happened when I figured, I knew something was up because he, he told me not to tell anyone and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the trauma happened for me when I came out with it. So when I came out with it, I was in the third grade. So mm -hmm. I was nine and a half, 10. Right. And the way that it was handled, people didn't know how to handle this stuff then. It was not common mm -hmm. and it was not talked about. 
And so um, in the, this was in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And so um, long and short is that they freaked out because I was in, I was in the Bay area. They basically, they called CPS. They thought that the guy was still there. He wasn't, he was back in Boston. Mm-hmm. They, um, they talked about it enough. So the whole school found out basically mm-hmm. um, they, and then it got to the point where there was so many crossed wires that I was brought into the principal's office and forced to recant. That was the trauma. Wow. So for years, right. It was like, it was the therapist would talk to me about the event. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't really like, I remember remembering it. I, this, that, the other, Mm -hmm. what happened was the trauma happened there. So I had these years before that trauma to see where my head was and Mm -hmm. see what I did and see what I did with food. And I really believe that, you know, I have two sisters who had, who grew up in the same home, mm-hmm. who had the same genetics, who turned out differently. I understand. So I suspect that the trauma and that rewiring and the rewiring from the move and the, that that rewiring um, was the result was helped by the genetics. Like I was, I was a perfect candidate to end up that way. Mm-hmm. And then you add that stuff in, and it lights it on fire. But anything could have turned the gene on. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I love that you're so transparent. I mean, a lot of people, it's hard for them to talk about this stuff, but you're so open about it. I love it. Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, it seems like you've done a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done a lot. I've done a lot. So, I, I, I mean, I started trying to get sober, or people started trying to get me sober at 15. Right. Um, I was sober, like, in some of the treatments. I relapsed in treatment. I overdosed between between treatments and my parents found me dead on May 17th of 2004. And, um, and then I got sober again. And then um, I went to all these places, all these treatment programs. Mm. And then I got out and I relapsed because of the alcohol Mm. thing. Alcohol is different than drugs. I maybe I'm this or the other. And, um, and eventually I got back to heroin and I, infected all the veins in one of my arms and almost lost an arm. And so that was like the bottom for me, like, this is just not working. Like I can't even use anymore. And, um, and what's interesting is like all these experiences, all this treatment, all this knowledge. And I kept trying to prove I wasn't an alcoholic because I could admit the other stuff. Yeah. And so I got sober at 19 using AA and all the tools and all the things that I had been through at that point, I'd been through, you know, more clinical hours than, than most therapists. And, um, and I made a deal with myself. I'm not going to drink or or use, but I'm not going to drink until I know for certain in my soul, Mm -hmm. if I am or am not an alcoholic. Okay. So not so if I am an alcoholic, I can still drink if I want. If I'm not an alcoholic, I can still drink. So that it but the idea was in my head, the deal I made with myself was I'm gonna do the work and if and and at the point where I know, then I'm allowed to make a decision. Two years in, still like unsure, right? I mean, I have stories of me peeing my pants so much at 16 that I had to wear that I like decided to wear adult diapers at 16 because like I was I'm not going to stop drinking. I'm going to, you know, solve the pee problem. And, um, and like still was un like unsure. Right. 
so two years I'm sober. I'm talking to my youngest sister who's five years younger than me. And she, we're talking about like old days or whatever. And she was like, yeah, I used to, and I was in maybe high school, maybe she's like, yeah, I used to crawl into your bed and move the bottles out of the sheets out of the way. And I go, what? She was like, yeah, you know, the water bottles you had in your sheets and it went I had slept with vodka and wine in water bottles, in my sheets, in my pillowcases, everywhere. And it was so normal, like brushing my teeth. Like I know I brushed my teeth in those years, but I don't remember brushing my teeth. Right. And it was like that. I literally didn't remember it because it was so like part of it. And my sister said something to me at two years sober. And you remember. And I remembered. And since that point, it talks in the in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about how um, you know, we have this, like, we know with, with the, our innermost selves, we admit to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Took me two years to get there. of sobriety to get there with that story, right. <laughs> but I stayed sober. So this was at 19? Over 19? I got sober at 19 and, and that was there a crisis me. that took you to sobriety at 19 where you yeah. just decided this is it? Yes. Because that's awfully young to get sober. Yes. It's doable. It's, it's great. It's just, yeah. Um, so I was trying the experiment of trying to drink like a normal person. Uh -huh. And it was getting increasingly not normal. <laughs> Besides the diapers? This, that was that was way before that. Oh, wait, this wait. was this was an honest attempt at trying to do it normally, right? I had, I'm out, out of treatment. I, you know, I got a boyfriend. I got, you know, I'm doing stuff, whatever. I'm living in um, Prescott, Arizona, and I'm trying to drink like a normal person. And I keep ending up in these situations normal people don't end up in. And um, and so it may be like six months go by. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend at the time is actually very supportive of my recovery. He, and so I'm hiding it from him mm -hmm. that I'm drinking. And, uh, and so we get to uh, December, and I find out that this girl that I met in treatment has slept with my boyfriend when I let her, I bought her a bed and I gave her room to stay. And like this whole thing, like gnarly betrayal, gnarly, like I'm betrayed basically by like all these people close to me. Right. And, um, something in my brain just went and I called him. I have no idea where I came up with this story. I called my boyfriend. I was like, I have to go teach a dance class. I didn't teach dance. I don't know what the hell. Like, <laughs> I have to go teach a dance class. We're living in Prescott. I get in my Jetta. Um, you know, 19-year-old white blonde girl gets in a Jetta. It's like, you know, something out of a movie. Drive sober, completely sober, down to Phoenix. I drive down to Van B I don't know what's, what it is anymore, but Van Buren's this area that you, I was like, I, I, you know, this is where the drugs are. I, yeah. I don't know who they are or what they are. So I drive down there and, um, I find, I find this trailer park in this gnarly part of town. I drive in, I park my car and I walk up to every single trailer and knock on the door. And I'm like, do you have heroin? Do you have heroin? Do you have heroin? Of course they're like, what? Who is this crazy ass chick coming? Whatever. I finally get to one. They have heroin. I have money. So, um, and I'm stone cold sober, but they only have dirty needles, like used needles. And so I'm like, okay, well, I know the, you know, junkie folklore is we take bleach and we pump it out. And if you do it 10 times, you know, you're good to go. And so I go into the trailer park, the trailer bathroom. Um, and it's these old hippies probably in their fifties and sixties. And they've been like, they, they, they look 
75. Right. You know, like they just look, they like, they were literally like old, like from their, you know, um, yeah, from their drug use, like in in a different way, like not age. Right. (laughs) And, um, they look like old junkies. They're all, yeah, yeah, but they're kind of like hippie ish. So I'm like, oh, maybe it's, you know, fine. Yeah. And um, so I do this, I clean a bunch of these used, dirty, rusted syringes and, um, and I shoot the dope in the, uh, oh, and I, I had overdosed, you know, a couple of years earlier. So now I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to overdose here. So I shoot tiny little amounts of all through my arm, right? Because I'm trying not to overdose. And so if I do it in short um, bursts that are a little diluted, then I'm going to, this is my logic then yes. I'm going to, then I'm not going to overdose in this place. And I'm going to create this, like, you know, this high that's different and longer and more controlled or whatever. Wow. And, uh, what I ended up doing was blacking out, losing my vision and my hearing. Um, I probably got like bleach and my, you know, I probably something and in infecting all the veins in my arm. And, um, and then, so I black out, I lose my vision and my hearing really scary experience. Um, are you with their trailer? I mean, yeah, I'm in their trailer. Um, luckily they were nice, you know, people, they didn't hurt me. Um, I don't know what the next series of events was, but I was uh, two hours away from Prescott. I ended up uh, the next thing I know I'm back in Prescott. Mm -hmm. I don't know where my vehicle is. And there's two dudes in my house. And they have my drugs and my arms are stuck like this because they, when you infect the veins in your arms, it hurts like no other. And you basically, whatever position you start to just, they start to just not want you to move. Mm. And so you stop being able to move them. And so I had this like moment, right. Um, where I'm yelling at these guys to give me the drugs. I don't know where my vehicle is. I'm stuck like this. My boyfriend comes home and is like, what's happening? He kicks these guys out. I'm like angry for him not giving my drugs and I'm stuck like this. And I get to the hospital. My mother flies in and she's like, are you going to make me bury you? And you know, like how many times, how many times do we have to do this? I'm 19. I made a decision to use like three days or before that, whatever it was. And then when I came to, and I had no intention of any of, of ending up in the hospital. My, I was like, Oh, I'll just go back to sobriety. I'll just go back to AA. Or if I want, if it's a problem, I'll just do X, Y, Z. It never occurred to me. I might not make it back or I might not, I may make it back with one arm or no arms or whatever, like, or AIDS or, you know, HIV, like those things. It was like, I just, in my head, was like this, it'll just, this'll just be fun and a good time. And it'll ease, you know, the pain of, of all the things that were going on. Mm-hmm. And at 19, I in that hospital with my arms stuck. So I could not give myself like my higher power basically was like, you're not, you can't do anything. Your arms, you are done. You yeah. are, you're relieved of the privilege of being able to put drugs into your body. Right. And I just was like, it's not working it's not working. Like I'm not feeling better. I'm not feeling numb. I end up in like the most ridiculous situations. Mm-hmm. I'm, I end up in the hospital within 48 hours of using, that's not the plan. Right. And, uh, and like, instead of dying, I'm going to be maimed. I was like, if I die, great, fine. 
but I wasn't dying. I was going to be maimed. I was right. going to be like, you know, irreparably damaged. And so I just, I gave up. I literally was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. I'm 19. I've been to how many treatment centers I've lived through so much. This disease has taken my entire childhood from me, mm. my teens, everything. It's taken everything I care about from me. I have nothing. I am not, I haven't graduated high school, you know, any of these things. And I just, something just shifted and I became willing to do whatever it, like, I just followed. I, for me, I went to a 12 step program, um, which, you know, for me, a lot of people want to go to a program that's specific to the drugs that they used. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which for me was all encompassing. And I did what they said and I did the steps and I did that. And you they, mean at 19, you didn't end up after that going to treatment or you just went? No. Where'd you go live? I, well, I had a place to live at the time. Prescott? Yeah. And you just went to meetings? Yeah. Cause I had, I, I knew the community. I had been uh, in the sober But living. after all that, like, wasn't yeah. there a major withdrawal? 48 hours. No, I was in the hospital. That's a hell of a realization to have at that age. I was beaten. It sounds like yeah, it. Yeah, I was beaten. You know, that's that's the thing about getting sober young is like, and which I tell people, wow, you know, how, I can't imagine. You, that's right. You can't imagine because it has to be so bad <laughs> that you want it, that you're like, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. All, every, every time I used Every experience I had, I lost more of myself, more of my life. Like it, 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 I couldn't go for more than 48 hours without, without ending up in a hospital. You know, I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know all this. And it, it but I would have always felt and what I know about you is like, she's here to stay. And like, you've been so, what, 16 years? Is that yeah, what it is? 16 now. So, and I think we met like, Probably in the Laguna yeah, yeah, circle yeah. of yeah. recovery. Yeah, I've probably known you for uh, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Ish. For a long time. Yeah. For a long time, I just noticed you, and yeah. then we noticed each other, but then we a friendship. Yeah. Right. Because I didn't know that you, what you were doing as far as work. Yeah. Um, obviously, you got sober at that time, and then... Um, and then the work really began. <laughs> do you mean like therapeutic <laughs> yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you were doing the therapy and all yeah. that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I did. The, I, I were. I was really involved in twelve stuff, and then I left Prescott and I moved down here uh, with eight months of sobriety, and um, I moved in with my friend Emily McAllister. I love who, her. Who I met through my boyfriend, who was not sober. He introduced us. I moved, and I called her one day. I was like, "I'm coming." To, you know, it was so like. So that's why you know Joanne too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, jo I met Joanne in a bar in Prescott. When, when, oh, oh, I like, think she told me. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we were like, we were in the bar, and we were, we were like, I'm sober. Are you sober? Well, yeah, we're both sober in a bar. Yeah. Um, and I moved down here, and I just poured myself into the meetings and the people. And at that time, I don't know what it's like anymore because I'm not in young people's anymore. I was going to ask you, were you involved in young people's? Oh, uh, was I involved? Recovery movement? Were you? It was life changing, nice. life saving. Young people's in. You know, I know we're, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about AA, but it saved my life. So I'm just going to, you know, you can yell at me later. Um, no, I'm not going to yell at you. Yeah. Personal recovery yeah. depends on AA. So, so for me, I went to young people's meetings. We had this t crazy talk show meeting. Um, I remember talk show. I met my husband there. Mm -hmm. I literally, like, we didn't, I didn't, I wasn't with him, but the first time I met him was in that meeting. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
we went and partied. Like we, I partied harder in my sober 20s than I ever partied loaded. It just looked different. Like we were just drinking Red Bulls. We were going to conventions. We mm. were, I mean, we, you did not know we were sober. We were at raves. We were jumping out of planes, jumping off bridges, you know, going scuba diving, going on group trips, group sex, group everything. Just we were part. You were young people that were yeah. sober, enjoying yourself, and it was. And it's very every, possible. It's everything I needed, yeah. and I, I look back on it as the best time, like time of my life. Like I had the most fun with the with the people you know, going and I moved to LA for, for school and I would go to this meeting at midnight in Hollywood yeah. and, uh, and it was so I know that just crazy. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and then we would all go out till two in the morning to like Denny's and it was a group of us. It was so healing for my soul mm -hmm. because if I had gotten sober and it had been boring and it had been lame, you go get loaded again. I'd get loaded. Yeah. And it was, it was, I it like, I just, it was so great. And, and when young people get sober and they get involved in that, I'm like, just do it all. Just, just coming from, you know, a, a suburb, old suburban mom now, like just, just get it out, do it all because it's, you can have the time of your life in sobriety. How old were you when you got married? I got married at 28. Okay. And then you have two I got, twins that are five-year-olds. Yes. Right? So when I was 30, I had, um, then 10 years sober, I had twin boys. And so, and, and I'm 35. Okay. Um, so for those that don't know, uh, you started a, a treatment center that is mainly online. It's only online. only online. It's only online. This yeah. is before telehealth was even a thing. It's before uh -huh. the pandemic. Um, oh yeah. In 2010. 2010, a lot of people probably didn't think it was possible to do outpatient oh, online. Oh, people were actively angry at us for doing it. It wasn't even that they didn't think it was possible. People I knew, people were like, you're you're hurting people. You can't do that. It won't work. I mean, people were gnarly about it for where, years. Where did you get the idea to take it online? So It's called Lion Rock. Lion Rock Recovery, yes. Right. Um, so my father is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. That's how we ended up in Silicon Valley. And, um, and he and his business partner were starting, um, were starting companies. My dad started a bunch of companies Right. and I was on my way to law school. I graduated, I got myself into UCLA and I graduated from UCLA. I did all the things to go to law school. I ended up working. I worked in East LA in the court, in the family court system in East LA. And then I worked, um, at the public defender's office in Orange County. And I was working in the public defender's office in Orange County, preparing for the LSAT, um, which was horrible. And um, and so my dad, whose name is Peter, and his business partner Ian, they were starting. They were doing all these other things. My aunt, who had struggled with addiction her entire life, um, who you know, very very similar to me, she passes away in 2010 uh, after a lifetime of alcohol and drug. Mm -hmm. as a result of her organs basically shutting down right. and um and my father and his business partner my father basically says why am i dry like when she was alive he was driving back and forth like two hours to go to her family groups and he was like why and he was doing business on to 
through online, you, we used GoToMeeting mm-hmm. and he was using, he was doing business with Ian, you know, through GoToMeeting. He's like, why don't we do this? Why don't we? So, so my, my dad's very much that guy. My dad went to all the family groups. He put me in treat. So he's, he's on the other side, like I've been, he's a, he's been a consumer of, mm-hmm. of the treatment business, right? right? A participant and a consumer. And so he says, why can't we do this? And so they start meddling with that. And I'm like, you're doing it wrong. That's not how that works. Da, 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 da. Let me get you in touch with this person. Blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, you know, me meddling. And um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm me. I'm meddling. I'm, t- I'm very, I'm telling my, my dad what to do, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he goes, well, why don't you, why don't you help us? Why don't you, you know, and I was like, eh, I don't want to do, I don't want to be in the treatment business. I've had enough treatment in my life. I'm going to law school. I'm going to do something you know, that has a career path and is straightforward. And so I end up hating working and like not wanting to be a lawyer. Like in, I mean, just this rise. It takes a lot. I had wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little, little kid. And now the dream had faded. I just, it wasn't, I had it. I had, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And, um, and so I started working on helping them with Lion Rock full time because they're, they didn't have the inroads to the treatment business. They came up with the name Lion Rock. So yes. Um, well, it was, a, we were originally Clarity Path and then this other treatment center had filed their patent um, a week before their copyright a week before we did. And so we had to change the same name, Clarity Path, mm-hmm. uh, Clarity Way, Clarity Way. And so we had to change all of our stuff and Lion Rock had been a name that Peter had used on a, you know, for his independent business. So we just threw that on and I like it. Um, so we started working on that. I was 23 and um, I was, I had, I was a international relations of the Middle East and public policy major. So I didn't have marketing skill. Like I didn't take any of those courses and right. have any of those experiences. So while we're doing this stuff, I'm taking courses online and marketing. So I know what the hell I'm, cause I'm very much afraid of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I will overdo in order to make up for the fact that I feel less than, or that I don't have enough of the information or whatever. So I was taking classes and trying to like take business classes and finance classes and trying to like make sure I knew what you were doing. Yeah. What I was doing. And, um, and we, you know, it's been 12 years, 12 years you've been in operation Mm -hmm. and it's national international. Lion Rock provides outpatient services internationally. Mm-hmm. Now, question for you. How does that work? Because you have therapists that are running groups or are they group facilitators or is it both? Um, it's because, mostly master's level therapists. Okay. And so if people are using their insurance in different states, doesn't it have to be the therapist has to be licensed in that state? They are. And you have that mm-hmm. internationally? Well, so internationally, a lot of the people who are in, who we have internationally have American insurance Mm -hmm. and they live abroad. Um, We've worked with some people who just pay cash, Mm -hmm. um, who like a lot of people from Saudi Arabia go to um, Sierra Tucson. Mm -hmm. And when they go back, it's illegal to, there are no services there for you. It's illegal, you know, they, they tell, you know, we went on vacation and, um, and so they just pay cash and, and, and do that as aftercare, things like that. But most of the people who are international are expats and they have American insurance or they pay cash. 
And so when the people, um, there's there's group therapies, there individual therapies, there all of it. It's we follow the ASAM protocol. So okay. three hours. So it's I IOP three hours, three times a week, and then an individual once a week. Um, and then we have a, we have a lower level of care that we created outpatient, which is twice a week of um, ninety minute groups, and then an individual as well. And how are you are you able to do your analysis to make sure that people are sober? So we do um, we do saliva tests, and saliva so tests. The, you send them something. We send them something. It's it has a code that is. So the code is the same. They have to show us the code. They, they read off the code so that we know it's the same code. Right. Um, and then they do it on camera and the results show up on camera. Like a monitoring system mm -hmm. to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. And then, um, and then they, and then we send it in for like the additional, um, to the lab for the additional, but it's the CLIA waived. So as much as people doubted you for doing something like this online, then all of a sudden the pandemic hits. And every we tripled in size in three months. And, I believe it. And we so like we currently have I think nearly a thousand clients in treatment right now. And I mean we trip I for people who don't know, tripling in size in three months for a business is so painful. It's overwhelming. <laughs> it's so painful. It's yeah. it's so hard to move that fast and sure. hire that fast and and um, so it was a great, and it went, and I had people calling me who uh, we all did, all three of us had people calling us, you know, asking like, how do I do this? What do I do? Oh my gosh, you were right. Like all sorts of stuff. And to be honest, you mean the people that doubted. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. doubted, you know, called. And well, also the pandemic made it easier for centers to be able to provide that service. Obviously insurance companies had to change some of their policies uh, to, to, to well, they had to create them. They, they had to create exist. them. They had to create them because I see them yeah. sometimes where it says, "Does it cover telehealth?" Yes, no, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would do it, and so some people have just resorted to just doing that, and it became a very common practice. Yeah, you know, or even if sometimes when COVID still hits, like a certain population in a center, well, they're going to have to yeah be quarantined and do telehealth. I mean, we were working with some of the top treatment centers who adopted our services. Um, shout out to Cirque Lodge and mm -hmm. Aton Center, who for years they used our services. We worked with them and worked very tightly with their clients to do aftercare. So we have people who are using us as primary care only, and we have people who are using us aftercare. And it was a way for treatment centers to make a solid recommendation as opposed to, okay, there's something down the street or, okay, you know, whatever it is, like, we'll just send you and hope that you go. This was much more accountability. And we worked with treatment centers early on, but there were a few of them who were, who were like, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah. You know, I personally, I probably, I used to wonder when I had heard that you were doing this, I mean, because I knew you, I thought, She's a great lady. I'm sure it's working, right? Right. I didn't really know. And I remember when the pandemic hit, when we were in 12-step meetings and we were going to 12-step meetings, and then they suddenly said, we're closing down the clubs, right? Yep. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to go online to go and do meetings. Like, I'm not, I've heard about this stuff, mm -hmm. modem to modem. They talk about it in the big book. Not, I'm not about to go like, how are you supposed to interact with people? And then suddenly, within a week, I'm on Zoom and I'm a Zoom whiz. I'm like... Yeah, you know, everyone was so we started, I started, 
So we have a, a Lion Rock Recovery, which is our professional services program. Sure. And then we have lionrock.life. And that's our like lifestyle um, resources. Like it's a whole, it's got like all this stuff for recovery. Mm-hmm. And that started with me starting meetings in, um, in, oh God, it was probably like 2014, 2015, like one meeting on go to meeting, creating the format and begging people to come and, uh, like trying to get them to in the meetings, to run the meetings, to speak at the meetings, and then growing those meetings until eventually, like, you know, in 21, I know we had 3,000 people a week coming to the, the meetings eventually, but I mean, it started with literally me going, this is so dumb. It's me and this stupid screen and three people. Why am I doing this? You know, and trying and, um, and, you know, Peter to my, to his credit was like, keep doing it, keep doing it. I was like, people are not going to do it. They're going to think I'm a fraud. They're going to blah, 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 blah. They're going to say, he believed in it. And, yeah. And he was like, Just sort of like the Wright it. brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Weren't sure. they, they had faith. Yeah. Yeah. And when one of us hasn't had faith, the, like the three co-founders, that's been a really special thing because when one of us is in a bad place or needs an extra push, like we, you know, the dynamic has been good. I, I really think that had it not been the three of us, we, you know, any one of us might have bailed on at one point. Do you think when your kids grow up and they're going to be old enough to understand are you going to be totally open with them about your past? Um, so I have a podcast and called the courage to change say, a recovery that, podcast. And yeah. in that podcast is a whole hell of a lot of stuff about me that they could, they could access. that they could easily access and find out all the most, I would say most of the gory details, not, not all of them, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I don't think that I will, my, my husband gets very nervous. He doesn't want them to know about, you know, the wild, wild sure. mom. And I don't think they want to know right. about that. So I, I don't have, but I do think that we, um, and we're already starting some talks about, um, look like this is in our house, in our family, we have these genetics sure. and, um, and we have to find, we don't have the luxury of not having fantastic coping skills. Mm. So I'm all about coping with them. I'm all about coping skills. We talk about, you know, naming emotions, what it is. I'm all the time. I'm like, it's, you are welcome. It is okay for you to be mad at me. I'd be mad at me too. I'd be mad at me. And like letting those things working on like, okay, what can we do? You're pissed off at me. What can we do that isn't destructive? Like trying to find ways to, Cause it's, you know, they have, they have those genetics and mm-hmm. then I'll talk to them about like, look, we, um, we didn't, we have an abnormal reaction to these substances. Mm-hmm. We didn't have coping skills and we got into this mess. And so we don't have, you know, we can't drink anymore. You may have that experience. And how can my, my goal with them is not to make, not to say you are an alcoholic and you are this sure. and you are that. But to be alongside them so that if they find that they need help, that they can quickly reach out and that I'm, I can support them. I want for them to have, like, I don't want them to be, I want them to be able to drink like normal people. Mm -hmm. That may not be in the cards for them. So I have to share with them 
is your experience. My experience and my husband, you know, yeah. with it. Oh, he's in happen. recovery too. Yeah. 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 Well, this is what's, what's excellent is this. You get to have, your kids get to have a sober mom from when they were first born. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that that's bad. My girlfriend, she's in recovery, but yeah. um, her kids all know about yeah, yeah. her past and she's got a gnarly past. It's actually very similar to yours. I mean, I think you guys would get along yeah. really good. Um, but, and another thing is that your parents get to have their daughter like yeah. back just, oh yeah. and I, I knew today was going to be powerful for many reasons. Cause, cause I know you're a powerhouse. Like, the whole going to law school, the miracles like that make me almost want to cry, which will make me emotional, is to know that you were fucking shooting dope in your like teens to the point of, I mean, it, that bad to be in a trailer in down in Arizona with a bunch of old junkies, bleaching rusted yeah. needles, yeah, just so you could get high oh, and then shutting bigger. down, yeah. And coming from that and then yeah. just transforming and being so young and making that decision, fuck this, I'm done. Yeah. Like I'm truly yeah. done. That this, oh, yeah. It's all about a decision. It it it's it's also a regular decision, like every five years or whatever, where you're like, I have to update my recovery too, because I find that, you know, I'm like I'm not strong in my recovery. Like you have to make the decision over and over again in the recovery, in your recovery to treat your alcoholism Mm -hmm. and your addiction Mm -hmm. as if it were still alive, you have to acknowledge that it's still alive. And for me, I struggle with an eating disorder that reminds me that like, I think an eating disorder for me, it sounds silly, but I think it is the thing that has kept me sober and saved my life because I, the way that I interact with certain foods Mm -hmm. is the way I interacted with drugs and alcohol. I understand. And so like really strange stuff too. And so I am reminded, I'm like, Oh, it's still like, I hear the, the, not the voices, but like the, the, I feel the addiction. I feel the, the monkey on your back. I feel the stuff. And it reminds me like, Oh, it's still in me. And I think that has helped keep me from going, Oh, I was 19. I was just a crazy girl. Right. Cause I'm unrecognizable from the girl that I was. My life does looks I mean, I have a minivan, like I, I, <laughs> my life looks nothing, nothing like that at all. My kids think I'm super lame. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's one of those things where with so much beautiful stuff can happen with recovery and we, it's really important that you continue to upgrade your recovery to make sure you're, you know, you, you don't have the same recovery. You don't have the same recovery plan, the same actions on day one that you're going to have in year five and year 10. Mm-hmm. And people, I know for me, I have let that go and mm-hmm. experienced emotional bottoms as a result and had to like, okay, back to back basics. To basics. Talk up, real quick. We're going to close it out, but tell them where they can find your podcast. Yeah. Um, you can find my podcast, The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast anywhere that um, you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all um, platforms, all the platforms. Yeah. And, and you can find um, um, Ashley Low Blasting Game on TikTok. You can find um, the Courage to Change underscore podcast on Instagram. So any all of the all of the social media places we are accessible and feel free to DM me and, and message me in any of those. Places. And what about Lion Rock? Lion Rock Recovery. So you can go to www.lionrockrecovery for our 
professional services, so our IOP, our online telehealth treatment, and LionRock.life for podcasts, for community, for meetings, um, and sober events. Awesome. Thank you for coming out today. Thanks for, for being me. on the corner. You're one of the best, truly. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. And tomorrow we will be back Saturday, May 28th, with Mike Bradshaw from LifeSync. Thank you all. Have a good day.